All right, so you were telling us right before we started, you do have some familiarity with the case we're going to talk about tonight. Yeah, I do. So I am not only a Palestinian-American, grew up in a Muslim family and Muslim kind of community, but also, you know, born and raised in the Dallas area. So this case, um, you know, was very much... Um, you know, close to home growing up. Yeah. Um, you guys and... are talking about this at the dinner table. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. My my family was talking about this case. Uh, people in my family knew the people who were prosecuted in this case. Oh, wow. That really bums me out because, I mean, I did a lot of reading on this. I read Miko Pellet's book on it and I listened to a number. I listened to the Electronic Intifada podcast that had the, the daughters of some of the men yeah. who were prosecuted in this case. It's an absolutely harrowing story. Yeah, it's yeah. really, um, it's, it's, it's super fucked up. And um, I think... You know, not to like jump, uh, jump ahead of the ball or whatever, but um, the effect that this had in the community, in the Muslim community, in the Palestinian community, the effect that it had on 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 really scaring people very deeply um, about uh, their 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 charitable work, right? Um, just knowing right. that everything that they were doing, even you know, donating to charity, was going to be really closely scrutinized, but. Um, but you know that you could that you could do time that you could be called a terrorist right, supporter right. it's just wild you're listening to Alab my name's Tarek and I will not be on this 23rd episode rather Rhiannon of 5-4 podcast and formerly the Mike Dicta podcast sits down with Tim and Andy in the first of our two part episode on the federal government's persecution and ultimate destruction of what was formerly the largest Muslim charity in the United States, the Holy Land Foundation. I hope you enjoy. So we have a guest tonight. Yeah, let's let's introduce our guest. <laughs> Rhiannon, uh, she's on 5-4 now. She used to be on Mike Dicta. Uh, Rhiannon stopped by to help us out with this episode. Um, uh, as you just heard, she's a little bit familiar with this case. Uh, the case that we're going to be discussing is about an organization called the Holy Land Foundation. And this is an organization that existed in the 90s. It was a at one time touted itself as the largest Muslim charity in America. And what we're going to talk about is the story of how this organization comes to be designated by the United States government as a foreign terrorist organization. And the subsequent criminal prosecution of the founders and principals uh, of this organization. And so... Uh, it's it's a horrific story, and and the major theme to pull it back to to what Rhi was just saying is it's an incredible move by the government to intimidate the Muslim community and to just absolutely shut them down and make them believe that they do not do not step out of line, do not send money back home, do not do anything because we will after the fact decide potentially that it's criminal and we'll put you away for life. Yeah, yeah, I, right. I think just just to kind of tee it up. Um, Nancy Hollander, the the attorney for one of the defendants in this case, she wrote a law review article in the Washington Lead Journal of Civil Rights and Social Justice uh, back in 2013. And in that article, she calls it the new Korematsu, uh, which if you're not familiar with that case, is the kind of landmark case that, that allowed the U.S. government to uh, put the Japanese in internment camps. And I really do think this case is kind of emblematic of the stance that the U.S. government took towards Muslim Americans 
in the early 2000s, not just abroad. I mean, I think, you know, it's very well-tread territory what happened to uh, people abroad, but also Muslim Americans living in the United States, uh, oftentimes are citizens or at least people who have all kinds of legal rights to due process and things like that. And, and what happens even when they don't have any actual links to terrorist organizations. Yeah, I think that's right. And I also just want to add that I think that, um, you know, this prosecution and, and this legal battle in particular maybe set the stage for um, what you see in a lot of subsequent prosecutions of um, of Muslims, um, uh, particularly, obviously, after 9-11, um, in the use of um, sort of weaponizing the culture of Islam and, um, and you know, Middle Eastern people in general, like, you know, uh, just bringing in the culture, weaponizing it, using stereotypes, right. um, all of that kind of stuff as part of, you know, you're not you're not just a person, an individual who is on trial for alleged uh, criminal behavior, but you are a representative of a, of a dangerous, right, and violent um, mm-hmm. uh, community, right, that needs to be prosecuted as a whole. Right. And, and so, and, yeah. And conflicting that with actual deeply held cultural institutions like charity in, in the right. most American as well. Right. Yeah, and you're going to see tonight when we get into some of these details that some of the things these that, that some of the testimony that's offered against the defendants here is just it's just unbelievable. I mean, just to give you a preview, at one point there is a guy who is uh, he's doing translations of uh, surveilled phone calls that the H, the we're going to be we're going to be calling Holy Land Foundation HLF all night. So just get used to that. Yeah. The, the HLF uh, members are being surveilled for years. They're having their calls tapped. And one of the translators uh, is explaining to the court in their criminal defense, listen, these guys are using terms like inshallah. They're saying alhamdulillah. <laughs> Let me tell you something. That's only stuff that, like, extremists say, okay? You don't hear that at a normal Muslim dinner table. Fucking laughable. Right. Absolutely yeah. laughable. Yeah. Like, Half laughable. of you would get put away for tweeting the picture of that dog. <laughs> right? weeks ago. <laughs> no, but I, yeah, just to make the point, like in the Middle East, people who speak Arabic, right? Even non-Muslims use the words inshallah, alhamdulillah, right? Yeah. Like, Christian Arabs it's use those words. It's fucking nuts. Right? Like, yeah. It's yeah. In, Sp- well, in Spanish, we have ojalá, which comes from inshallah. Exactly. Like, it's, it's, right. It's, it's, it's like a very basic phrase throughout the it's, world. It's fucking nuts. And we'll, we'll talk more about that guy, but that was just to give you a taste of right. the kind of thing that Reese talking about where this really is like a smearing and uh, an attempt to attack people um, as an entire identity. You are not alone. You are not an individual. You're going to be held responsible for the recorded conversations of people you never fucking met. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Foundation was started by uh, a couple people, uh, chief among them a man named Shukri Abu Bakr, who uh, was living in Texas and had a daughter with with kind of medical needs, extra medical needs that that really required his attention. 
Um, I believe she passed away in 2018 or so, um, but, you know, was able to live something of a, of, a, of a life here in the United States due to the medical attention that she was able to receive here. And uh, Mr. Abu Bakr realized that if he had been living in Palestine, his daughter wouldn't have, would never have had a chance, would never have even had to have the, the years that she was able to have here. And so he and a couple other individuals decided to create a charity that would send uh, to people living in Palestine. And so in the late 80s, this this Holy Land Foundation was started uh, and they donated to all all sorts of charitable causes. When there was disasters here in the United States, they would send money here. Uh, But their main focus, obviously, was Muslims and people in Palestine in particular. Yeah. And I think you could describe uh, the charity work that they were doing as sort of like humanitarian aid. Right. Like it was it was sort of medical aid, um, you know, educational aid, all of that stuff, like the kind of the kind of um, structural donation and charitable work that you would send to any other country that um, is incredibly poor. And it's important to note that they did get big. We mentioned that they called themselves the largest Muslim charity in the U.S., which I'm sure was some amount of marketing. But regardless of that, it it stands to reason that they were a fairly mainstream uh, organization with a lot of assets and funds. Yeah, I mean, by big, like, it's it's funny because relatively, right, we're talking about, like, I think when they seized their assets, they got, like, $12 million or something. I mean, I'm sorry, but, like... Many other charities, <laughs> huge fucking charities. Like that's that's small potatoes. But fancy fancy lawyer <laughs> just right? think twelve million dollars a lot. No. But yeah, it, it, it yeah it, it definitely wasn't Oxfam, but it also no. The, you know, I they mean, were able to. I'm not saying that to they shit on them. What I'm saying is that is is to point out because what ends up happening here is that in the in the early and mid '90s they catch the attention of the Israel lobby and 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 of the state of Israel right. and. They start getting target. They start targeting HLF. They start lobbying hard to get Hamas uh, designated as a foreign terrorist organization, which is not not HLF. I'm not conflating the two, but they start. They, well, we're not conflating. Right. The two. They, they start. They start this process of of moving to isolate Hamas and Hamas financially, um, and what I wanted to point out by saying that it's not like it's not like a huge charity is that. Uh, no target is too small for That's this right. for yeah. this lobby, right? right? They wanted to crush these people, and all these these people were. I mean, incredibly small potatoes here, right? Yes, yeah. but at the same time, mainstream potatoes as well. They were not uh, people really with any kind of of any kind of political agenda whatsoever. They were really just kind of focused on helping. Um, yeah, send money to all suits. I mean, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. It was. It was. Yeah. It. It was just your normal charity. Yeah. Yeah. So. 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 Um, top level here. Before we even start to drill down into any of the cases, there will never be an allegation by the government in this case that HLF or any of its principals participated in terrorism, knowingly tried to, you know, incite some kind of terrorist thing, or tried to, you know, thread their money through to get to a terrorist, or that they thought that that was happening. Uh, there's none of that at all. The allegations are only the allegations are only that they are giving money, which could potentially trickle down to and create more fungible resources in the pocketbook of an organization which might itself carry out such activities. That's the that's yeah, the I, height I, of even the allegations, I, not what's proven, right. not just our opinion. That's all they ever uh, were accused of. Right. I think I think here at A Lab we love messy stories where there aren't any heroes and and all kinds of villains. But like we're not being snookered here. Like this this is what the government alleges HLF did, which is essentially nothing. 
Yeah, right. No. You know, right. no one, no one, including the government, including Hamas, including Israel, is saying that Holy Land Foundation did anything even remotely directly connected to to furthering any terrorists. Right. And they still got railroaded to hell. Yeah. And and just to get a little background on that, I think we should bring up uh the nineties were an interesting time uh due to the fact that in nineteen ninety four Newt Gingrich won the House, um, which led to Bill Clinton kind of triangulating uh, the Clinton triangulation, which lots of political scientists have written, I'm sure, very, very interesting articles about. Uh, but what it led to were passages of certain laws, um, chief among them for this case, uh, a law called IRA-IRA, which was kind of an immigration reform law that kind of set the stage for the a lot of problems with modern immigration and uh, AEDPA, uh, which was a statute that kind of did um, some criminal justice reform around habeas petitions uh, and, and around the death penalty. But, but in both of those acts, um, what they did was they amended the Immigration and Naturalization Act to permit the Department of State to designate certain organizations terrorist organizations. It kind of streamlined uh, a process for designating organizations as promoting terrorism. Um, which, you know, there were ways to do it before, but, but after these bills, it became a lot easier. And so Hamas became one of the first of these organizations to be listed as a terrorist organization, uh, by the Department of State on October 8th, 1997. Yeah. I think it should be noted too, that Hamas, you know, we might know it in the States as, um, as a terrorist organization because it's been designated as such for the past, you know, uh, 25 years by the U.S. government. But, um, you know, I think it's important to note that um, Hamas is a political party that um, that operates in Palestine and um, sort of, um, you know, famously won elections to take control over um, Gaza uh, because they ran on a platform of sort of militarized and active uh, resistance to the Israeli occupation. So, um, you know, this is uh, an organization, I think, that it is, um, you know, on on the facts and on its face, uh, debatable whether it is actually a terrorist organization. I mean, uh, when you think that, uh, you know, the U.S. Uh, does plenty of military activity all over the world. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I but... don't think listeners of this, of this podcast are going to be strangers to... To, yeah. to, that to the fact sh- that, that, the that States- Shelton Blake guy or whatever his name is is listening to this fucking steam yeah. right now. I, I don't yeah. think that, that the listeners of this podcast are going to be strangers to the fact that uh, the United States might right. what, you know unfairly designate somebody. What, what Hamas right. the the basis for designating Hamas as such is that is that they did advocate and and carry out armed resistance uh, against mm-hmm. against Israel. There's no yes. there's no question. I, I don't think that's in dispute from anybody. I don't think Hamas would dispute. <laughs> yeah. Right. I do think uh, interesting though is the timing too in the late '90s because prior to that. Israel really supported Hamas because they were kind of a uh, more Islamist alternative to another organization that actually got on that first terrorist list, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which was a secular uh, liberation front for Palestine. And Israel used Hamas in the late 80s and early 90s after the first intifada to kind of uh, ameliorate the, the influence of the PFLP. And so they really, I mean, lots of people were giving money to Hamas that that would later designate them as terrorist organizations because at that moment they were useful. But then once they were able to 
get their own power and kind of get their own power base and become an independent political party, they suddenly became a threat. And it was in the late 90s that they started to really kind of turn on Hamas. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really important point to to highlight that they were useful um, to, you know, conservative and more um, sort of right wing interests. Right. Whereas the PFLP represented um, not just a, a sort of secular party platform for Palestinian liberation, but also, um, you know, explicitly leftist. Yeah. So the, the the important beat for this case, though, is that Hamas becomes designated as a foreign terrorist organization. And at that point, it then becomes illegal under the ADPA to offer material support to such an organization. ADPA includes the material support for terrorism statute. And so under ADPA, it's illegal to offer material support to anyone who has been designated by the Department of State as a foreign terrorist organization. So the Department of State, one of the first one of the first one of their first picks, their first round draft pick is Hamas, right? Yeah. right. And that's because there's there's a heavy lobby saying, "Look, put these guys on. Put these guys on first. Now, Hamas isn't carrying out any terrorist uh, activities or, you know, even alleged activities in the United States, but they they're first on the list. David Aufhauser, who was general counsel to the Treasury at the time, said, quote, it was almost comical, end quote. Quote, we just listed out as many of the usual suspects as we could and said, let's go freeze some of their assets. I have my suspicions that Israel was involved in that, but I don't know that. But I do know, because it's been written about and is public now, that the Treasury Department literally created scapegoats and said, we have these Palestinians, let's just go out and seize their assets. And that's what they did. There was no hearing, there was no due process, there was nothing. They went in and seized everything, down to the plants. Pre-1995, there were plenty of Hamas uh, contacts. There was, mostly it was money received from certain Hamas superiors, and they, uh, some of the people involved with HLF had family members who were in Hamas. Um, but they were always quite careful to, uh, you know, separate their books from that kind of stuff, to assiduously document where their, where their donations went, and they were quite aware, uh, especially following the designation of Hamas as a foreign terrorist organization, that they, that they needed to be careful about where the money went. And so there's tons of documentation that comes up in this case that, that evidences all of that. But it turns out that none of that shit is going to fucking matter yeah, at all. Exactly. Um, but but, but pre-1995, there are a bunch of Hamas contacts, and that's going to become important later because the government is going to pretend uh, that it was illegal back then uh, and use right. that to convict these guys. Right. Um, so we'll, we'll get to that. But essentially, Hamas gets designated as a foreign terrorist organization. HLF, to the extent it had any dealings with Hamas, which I, I don't think there were many dealings but there were say connections um those were severed around 1995 or when you know whenever the designation took place and everything's fine for years okay years go by nobody's thinking about this shit at all uh they are sending their money hlf is in, in large part providing its donations to what are called zakat community zakat committees which are uh you know charitable organizations uh in palestine and israel that are meant to uh, I think the Zakat communities exist worldwide, but they're they're there to distribute charity. You can give charity to them and safely understand that it will be distributed to the most needy people because right. the people in charge of them are that's what they do. Exactly. 
it is an avenue to carry out one of your sacred duties under under uh, Islam, as I understand. It. Yeah, zakat is one of the five pillars of Islam. It sort of generally, broadly, just refers to um, to charity, and that's right. All over the world, um, there are Muslim charitable um, organizations, basically, that are designated, kind of, or, or known as like a, a zakat organization or a zakat uh, community. And and um, just like you said, Andy, if you if you donate money to them then you know that your money is is um, going somewhere to um, somebody who needs it. Right, and everybody does that, right? That's not just like uh, totally. some weird thing that Muslims do or whatever. Like everybody's like, okay, well, Oxfam, I kind of know the right. money's getting where it's supposed to go. Right. And it's not just, you know, ending up in the pockets of, you know, the telemarketers for it or whatever. So everything is fine for years. And then 9-11 happens, right? September 11, 2001. The country's in total shock. If you were a child at the time, I, I mean, I'm sure you still even yeah. remember this, but and, and I'm sure you're, you've heard plenty about it, but the Bush admin is reeling. The entire country is reeling, and the Bush admin is looking to demonstrate fast action and response. They are looking for something, anything that they can do to show that they are acting because, you know, they're, they're not mobilizing military response just yet or anything. There's, there's, they, don't, they don't have that quite yet. Uh, so what happens is they they turn to they turn to the Department of Treasury and they turn to OFAC. Now, if you're a fan of this podcast, you've heard our various uh, you know episode seven and some other episodes where we talked about sanctions regime. OFAC within Treasury manages the sanction regime, uh, and Treasury goes looking for any accounts it can freeze that they can put on the news that Bush can hit the Rose Garden and say, "Yeah, look, we're stopping terrorism already." Yeah, they um, need a flex. That's exactly. right. They need a flex. <laughs> and we know this. We know this is the fact because uh, there are books written about the Bush administration after the fact in which um, – what is it? Uh, Ron Suskin writes in a book published about Treasury Secretary Paul O'Neill at the time that these were these were just drummed up without regard to the truth or falsity or the relevance or irrelevance. What they needed were names. Put right. the names on a fucking list so we have something to yeah. say. We need to get out there. We can't just be sitting there twiddling our thumbs. These guys are just, you know, the news just won't stop uh, carrying this picture of Bush uh, <laughs> reading My Pet Goat. <laughs> Uh, we gotta have something to fucking say. In the book, um, they they quote uh, David Aufhauser, who was uh, GC for the Treasury at the time, who said, oh, "Right, it was almost comical." He said, uh, "We just listed out as many of the usual suspects as we could and said, let's go freeze some other ass." So clearly not an insane admission right. from the GC. <laughs> uh, clearly not uh, too much uh, respect for the due process of law. Uh, when fucking that's fucking when, general that's counsel, like, oh yeah, we fucked those guys. We just, we, we just destroyed them. So this is so so this announcement gets made two weeks after nine eleven. Okay, September twenty fifth, two thousand one, several organizations are having their assets frozen. Now, one of them is HLF. Now, Holy Land Foundation gotta be confused as all shit because what the fuck could we possibly have to do with nine eleven? Right. <laughs> it's not and, and what you'll find out is that it's not even alleged that they had no, anything to right. do with 9-11, right? Hamas to do with I mean, even if you were to try to make the connection between them and Hamas uh, nobody thinks Hamas had anything to do with fucking 9-11. Right. So you add all these facts together, all right? We have an organization, a charity organization that is peacefully operating in a way that everybody knows that they're operating. They are, I, I, as we said earlier, they've been under surveillance for years. Everybody knows what they're doing and what they're up to. Uh, everybody knows where their money goes. They they make reports. They assiduously document it. And the major theme of this case is what happens to these people when... 9-11 happens, and then this jingoistic, racist wave of, of uh, 
anti-Muslimism shows up in the United States and just decides it has to start steamrolling. Yeah, I mean, think them. about what happened is is kind of in the in the late nineties the the terrain of the law shifted a bit and suddenly you have to kind of reorganize your context in the Middle East. And they do that. They follow the letter and the spirit of the law to ensure that they are complying with essentially a bunch of new onerous uh, regulations thrown at them because the president doesn't want to lose to Newt Gingrich. But then in 2001, (laughs) the the terrain shifts again, but now it's completely invisible. There's no line anymore. It just, the government decides, we're going to go after you. And all of the stuff that you did before is completely irrelevant. Yeah, by the way, you've been committing crimes for Yeah, years. by the way, you yeah. Just, uh... <laughs> by the way, you have to go to prison forever. So it's it's fucking nuts. So then in December, middle of Ramadan, the FBI raids Holy Land Foundation offices in the US and they take everything down to the plants. They get 12, they freeze all the accounts, they uh they take 12 million in aid um and they raid the place of documents. So now the Holy Land Foundation is sitting there like, well, what what the hell just happened? You know, I mean, we have nothing to do with 9-11. Right. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure they're not that confused. <laughs> <laughs> re, re, re-pipe up yeah. here if everybody was just throwing their hands up like, hmm, what could be causing this? <laughs> read between the lines of the page break in the middle of every line. So what do you do when you're an organization and all of your assets are challenged and they're challenged by an administrative designation? The first thing that happens is that they challenge the designation uh, as a foreign terrorist organization. And so HLF goes to court to challenge an administrative determination. This is the first attempt to get out of this mess, and it's the first sign uh, of of a very long line of of shit that is going to rain down on these people. So if you're not a lawyer and you've never done this before, when you challenge an administrative decision, the process looks like this. Okay, this the standard for evaluating an administrative action, which is an, any action by a government agency. You know, uh, that that might be like a benefits decision. It might be a, pr- a final rule that gets promulgated. It might be an adjudication about your particular thing. Maybe the NLRB decided it wasn't an unfair labor practice or something. Um, the standard for evaluating an administrative action is that the decision is only vacated and remanded by a, a federal court if it's shown to be arbitrary and capricious, not supported by substantial evidence, or maybe it's otherwise contrary to Right. It, it, it's sort of like in the APA, the uh, Administrative Procedures Act, uh, which is kind of like the constitution for administrative procedures generally. Those are kind of the big ways you would challenge a law, kind of like what you would do with a, a, a sort of strict scrutiny under constitutional law, if that makes sense. Right. So, I mean, the, the main the main standard that you use to challenge is arbitrary and capricious. Right. The others don't come up quite as much. Uh, and arbitrary and capricious is essentially saying what, what essentially you're going to argue is that this is an irrational decision. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Right. That's right. Now, this is a very high standard because all they have to show is that, well, we read some documents. We concluded from those documents X. Unless it's impossible to conclude from those documents X, you're fucked right. in your challenge. Okay. Now, what the administrative record is, uh, and I'm explaining all this so that you know what these people were up against when they went to challenge this. Um, when the administrative, what the administrative record is, is the decision document. That's the memo or the the decision document or whatever, and then any evidence that was relied upon or referenced in that decision document. So if the agency considered it, it's got to show up in the record. And what ends up happening is that this record gets filed with the court. Um, if you are familiar with litigation, if you're not familiar with, with litigation at all and you're not a lawyer, you might not know So the, the way that this works. But in normal litigation, you have a universe of facts. And then once discovery closes, that's the entire universe of facts. No party gets to add new facts to the bucket, uh, hopefully. <laughs> and then 
uh, you know, the parties move for summary judgment or you do trial and then nobody can add new stuff. You can only present the things that have already been produced in discovery. This is kind of like that, except it's, uh, it's much more limited. And what the universe of facts is just what the agency considered. The administrative record, that's all, all the evidence that they considered and their decision document. Um, now, the true basis for the decision has to be disclosed to the court so that it can be evaluated. That's going to come up later. Uh, it can't just be a fake basis that they fabricated in order to pass a review. Right. So the record's filed by the government. It's it's disclosed to the other side, uh, one would hope. Uh, <laughs> and then the parties brief the challenge to the decision, right? So so the challenging party files a motion for judgment on the administrative record. Or they file a motion for summary judgment. Uh, in, in this case, they, they're, they're doing summary judgment motions. Um and it's, it's like a motion for summary judgment, but like I said, there's a closed universe of facts that's just this record. Um, and the plaintiff has to show that just reasoning from these documents, look, there's just no evidence here, or the logical inferences they made are, are stupid, they don't make any sense, or, or maybe there's some really important issues that, that should have been considered. The only way to make this decision is if you consider A, B, and C, and these guys forgot C. Uh, or... Or maybe they made the decision on a bunch of irrelevant matters that shouldn't have been considered at all. So this is all in the abstract, but then the government responds with its own motion, and their whole job is just to connect A to B to C. Right. They go, look, document A, d- d- document 1 said this, document 2 said this, 1 plus 2, this is easy. <laughs> this is the conclusion. Yeah. Right, right. So to, bring it to, so to bring it back to kind of like realistically, again, the huge obstacles that HLF was facing, you know, they have to show that being designated as a terrorist organization um, was, you know, completely irrational, right? That there's no right. evidence whatsoever, that um, it, it's an illogical uh, and, and um, it's an illogical and irrational designation, um, you know, based on um, facts or matters that are completely irrelevant, made up, you know, uh, that kind of thing. Right. You're going to be stuck arguing that there's no way they could have concluded from whatever's in the record. Now, here's the first problem. They have no fucking idea because HLF was not presented with the decision or any opportunity to respond to the decision or what the evidence against them were. They just found out on the news, like everybody else did, (laughs) that their assets were being frozen. Right. And then the cops show up at the offices and they're like, "Okay, what the fuck? So they have no idea what the basis for the decision is until they file their action. And then they get some of the evidence. (laughs) Now, I'll tell you procedurally what happens here, I'm sure. I mean, I don't I wasn't privy to these conversations uh, or anything. But in this case, I'm sure the government realized that you have a due process violation here. If you did not receive notice or an opportunity to respond and what and what happened was they froze your assets and raided your offices. uh. Generally, that's not going to go well. <laughs> Your constitutional rights guarantee at least slightly more than that, you yes. would think. Um, and so what happens in the middle of the case, you can see this in the docket of the case, uh, or not exactly in the docket, you see it in the papers of the case. OFAC sends a letter in April 2002 uh, that includes whatever they used previously, any of the evidence that they used previously except for any classified evidence. And it includes a little bit of new evidence that they're considering. And they're saying, we're not turning over the classified stuff, but here's like most of what we're looking at. And if you guys want to challenge what we're doing, what we're thinking about designating you, redesignating you as a foreign terrorist organization. Now, I say the government attorney noticed there was a due process violation because the only reason you send a letter like this is because your government counsel said, look, we're fucked if you don't do You got to do this <laughs> you again. Gotta, you you got to give them a chance to say something. Like doing. Right. You got to give them a chance. So they send them a letter and they say, here's all the evidence. Get back to us in 15 days uh, for us to consider whatever you have to say in response. 
get back by May 15th. Now, they're being alleged to have provided material support to a terrorist organization located, like, I don't know, diametrically across the globe or something. Like right. That. Yeah. Like <laughs> almost exactly halfway around the globe. <laughs> and they're telling, yeah. And they're saying, well, get back to us by May 15th. We're, we're thinking about making the decision on May 30th. Look, if you get us anything after May 15th, okay. Yeah. But like, maybe we won't have time to consider it. 15 fucking days. And this was in, this is, this was in 2002 also. This was not, this was before right. the iPhone and, or anything like that really would have even been right. feasible. We're fucking relying on FedEx, you yeah. know? So, so I mean, they, they had email and stuff, but like, this is a serious fucking problem. You have to look at the evidence they have. You have to speculate about what the classified evidence is they didn't turn over. And then you have to come up with, I don't know, some kind of an evidentiary package that you hope will convince them otherwise. Right. Now, this redesignation happens after the initial filings of the case. The initial filings included a motion for preliminary injunction, which was like, asking the court, hey, before we get to trying this matter, you should reverse this decision because they're not going to win, and here's why. Um, And they attached a bunch of exhibits to that. Now, the agency said they considered, I don't know, most of that. Um, So they do get some evidence in, but in response to this letter, they don't get anything in. They, They asked for an extension. OFAC said, fuck off. And then they just didn't get their, you know, whatever new stuff they might have been working on, they didn't get it in in time. Mm -hmm. I got to say, when I read that footnote, I was a little disappointed. But the more I read about the case, I realized the attorneys are far more skilled than I am. So that would have been very sophomore for me to ding them for that. And I think it really had to do with the fact that it was like cross-planet evidence. Or, I mean, OFAC could have just said like, oh, we didn't get it. I mean, I've had that happen with like loan modifications. I can imagine OFAC in the middle of after 9-11... You know, they probably lost a document somewhere and said, oh, I guess you didn't, you know, get it by the... I mean, that's pure speculation, but, I mean... I mean, they could have. I'll say that the way the rest of this case goes, there was no need to. No, there I mean, was the fix was in from yeah, the jump. Yeah, good point, yeah. yeah. Hold up. She keep calling me babe, I said, that's not my name. Million dollars, million followers, ho, that's not the same. And I just washed off the chicken, baby, that's not cocaine. She so high, you got 200, you can get like four things. Yeah, the G Gorilla Pimps, they with Okay, so we've talked about all the top-level procedure, and I want you to understand it because so that way you can you can understand what's coming next. So the district court gets to rely only on the evidence that's part of the record. Now, it's insanely hard to get the record supplemented with other stuff outside of the record for general administrative record challenges. Because, because what eventually ends up happening here is that the court says, sorry, review is limited to just the administrative record. Now, on one sense, that's a very uncontroversial thing to say. On another, <laughs> from another angle, this is a very unusual case. This is a case not about like a rule being promulgated about the kind of seatbelts that might be required by the NHTSA or something, um, or you know an OSHA regulation. This is a rule that specifically, and an adjudication and a designation that specifically pertains to one organization, and they are essentially being found guilty by the agency of. Uh, insanely criminal activity. Right. Being designated as a terrorist organization. It's a right? fucking it's, terrorist <laughs> organization. Right. Like you're, yeah. you're, right. And, and 9-11. They're being executed as an entity. Yes. And 9-11 has just happened. Right. Like this is this is like being designated as like the public serial killer after, you know, right. after a string of serial killers has like mass murdered, you know, uh, uh, many people across the country. Like this is this is no yeah, joke. The chief this of police is, is yeah. determined that you have several Dahmer-like qualities. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. Yeah. It's fucking nuts, right? So in this particular type of environment, you might think that, certainly as the the plaintiff, as HLF, you might 
want some additional evidence to come in and we're going to talk about some ways in which that uh, in which that's true and none of them are going to get through um, but essentially what the court finds is that first HLF had funding connections to Hamas the record supports that okay now the problem is all of these funding connections to Hamas these are all pre-1995 before Hamas was ever designated as a terrorist organization so before it was even illegal that doesn't fucking yeah, matter and that the the connections were largely that the that HLF had received money from Hamas members, not yeah, that they dispersed the mo- it, which is the opposite of That's going the wrong fucking right. way if you want to show some kind of control or something. Right. Like, that's going the wrong direction. They get the money, and then they do with it what they will. I mean, why is Hamas giving the money if they're just sending it back to Hamas? If that's your allegation, it doesn't make any fucking sense. Yeah. It, doesn't even, it doesn't even support the conclusion that they are somehow supporting Hamas. They... It, it supports the conclusion that they are, I guess, supported by Hamas. But that, I wouldn't, I don't know if that's illegal, but it's not, it's certainly not illegal <laughs> under the, the statutes they're being designated under. Right. Especially since that money, that money went to, to poor people in Palestine. It didn't, right. it, it didn't go anywhere other than that. Yeah, it's not going for fucking C4 purchases or something. Yeah. yeah. So it's, so it's a totally irrelevant ground to smear HLF on. But the court finds mm-hmm. it and they say, yeah, the record supports this. Then it says that HLF leaders met with Hamas leaders. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I guess they do have some context. Wait, it was again pre-1995. So it's not even questionable. It doesn't. It's not fucking relevant. It's right. not a legal activity for them to have met mm-hmm. Hamas leaders before the government even thought there was a problem with Hamas. Right. right. Um, you know, just to bring it back to, like, uh, you had such an interesting uh, uh, seatbelt example, Andy, that I'm thinking, like, you know, this is, like, pointing out that, like, you didn't used to wear your seatbelt, but that before seatbelt laws went, to, went into right. effect, right? Like, hey, okay, I got a ticket. That doesn't I got fucking a ticket. matter. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right, I'm going to ticket you for uh, before we made this a law but it turns out we recorded you doing this thing it's fucking nuts it's it's honestly it's one of the basic precepts of due process is that the government can't just say oh you you committed a crime 10 years right and so the court the court is just phoning it in here the court's saying well the agency could have reasonably considered that you had hamas connections okay done um show now 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 it's now the burden of proof has changed right it's not the government's burden of proof to show that you had Hamas connections. It's now your burden of proof to disprove right, right. the thing that mm-hmm. they proved with the relevant evidence. Okay, so then there's uh, then there's the issue of uh, Zakat communities. Um, and what yeah, they're saying here, is that... Go ahead. Here, um, what, yeah, what the government was saying was just that because HLF gave money to these Zakat communities and essentially because they were in the West Bank, some of that money, and I think they were able to prove that some of that money eventually reached... Hamas militants but I mean the connection is just so remote because those communities were meant to give money to everybody and so the fact that some of that money landed in the hands of say a kid that was the nephew of a Hamas militant you know isn't really showing any kind of actual intentional connection to Hamas. It's like calling a fucking rain cloud a terrorist you know for yeah, like right. raining on the wrong you know for giving some exactly. relief for the, from the heat to the wrong side of the neighborhood it's fucking nuts yeah, and just uh, right. just want to underscore the sort of uh, methodology, I guess, of of the U.S. government here, which mirrors exactly right what the IDF in Israel says <laughs> oh, about yeah. about Palestinian militants, yeah. right? That um, well, we had to bomb that school because Hamas uh, were teachers there, and it'll end up being that like it's you know a Hamas member's you know nephew who is a custodian. At the school. And it's a very 
real way to, to kind of show that the U.S. government thinks that every Muslim is essentially responsible exactly. for every other right. Muslim. Like, right. Here it is spelled out in black and white. And like, responsible for 9-11 specifically. Yeah, exactly. Like, you, because... This money essentially got sneezed on by a guy who thinks Israel shouldn't exist. Right. You caused 9-11. Yeah. That's, what, that's <laughs> basically what the government's like view is. Yeah, that's right. And everybody's got to pay for it, right? You, right, right. Yeah, and it's being it phrased. And you have to go to jail pay. because of it. Yeah, yeah, and it's a district court judge in very serious language. People are in robes and ties as they argue it. But these that is the absurdity of the argument here. And, and Ree, what you said is, is, is one of the major themes of this case uh, also, which is the transplantation of of security theater whole of just taking like hey here's how they do breaches here's how they do airports let's just turn it all into that let's yeah. turn our entire country into that shit yeah exactly so another thing that the um that the government was saying um sort of contributed to the um the terrorist designation was that the hlf had donated to children of um, so-called martyrs, right? So HLF had a program of providing resources and schooling to orphaned Palestinian children. Um, and, over- and you can guess how they got orphaned by the Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and how do you think that those, how do you think that those kids were orphaned? Often in, you know, sort of mass bombing campaigns, um, you know, by Israel. Uh, so anyways, um, so OFAC found that this was actually HLF secret plan to support terrorist bombing campaigns because um, about half of the children supported were designated in Palestine, right, as children of martyrs. This is such a great argument. I love <laughs> yeah. <it. laughs> um, um, and, you know, a side note here that the the U.S. government found um, kind of particularly interesting that many of these dead parents had been killed or at least previously jailed by uh, Israeli security forces. Right. Um, surprise, surprise. So, right, that's you know, proof positive that these people needed to be, that they were evil. Right, right, basically saying, oh, well, if Israel jailed them, what more do you need, right? When, it's fucking so nuts. Yeah, right? yeah, not even taking yeah. a step back, like just, uh, just a, a ridiculous assertion, right? You're talking about occupied territory. This is a guy, Your, your Honor, this is a guy... <laughs> This is this is a man who was beaten by his slave owner many That's many right. times right. before yeah. being freed. Can you trust a man's testimony like this? Like yeah. are you fucking, exactly. it's fucking insane. Everyone is getting right. fucking jailed and attacked. Yeah. I mean, I mean, can, how many how many Soviet dissidents were deported back to the USSR because they were jailed by by the Soviet? Yeah, so they're saying that um, you know people being killed by uh, Israeli security forces—that's um, what led to these people being designated as martyrs. And the term isn't being used to designate suicide bombers or even sort of like active military uh, uh, resistance, right? People carrying out active military resistance—it's just somebody who died under Israeli occupation. Yeah, yeah. martyr right. is essentially a euphemism. Right, right. A martyr, you know, sort of uh, culturally speaking, is is somebody whose death represents a little bit more, right? Like uh, right. somebody whose death is sort of a symbol of, um, you know, uh, ongoing oppression. And it can happen a myriad of ways under occupation. It's not just necessarily a violent death on a bombing or somebody that died because they didn't receive medical attention could be considered a martyr. Absolutely. Right, especially if you believe that that, that that failure to receive medical attention was a condition that was imposed by an occupation. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, the evidence that like half 
half of the kids' parents were martyrs um, should have highlighted, actually, um, their plight under occupation. But instead, it's sort of contorted and used it as evidence that that these people, these families um, were terrorists. Yeah. And recall and recall that, like, HLF makes this argument. Okay, the only way you fucking ignore it is if you are an absolute piece of shit. So, like, the judge in this case and the and the, and the opposing attorneys in this case are just, like, I'm sorry, but just really fucking awful people. You have this explained to you. At what point do you look back and go, oh, okay, well, we shouldn't be relying on at least that argument, right? If, they're, if that's not how they're using the term. Yeah. You know, we're not pushing right. this one to the hilt. They don't give a fuck. Nobody no. in this nobody in this case gives no. a fuck, and they present this argument and it's and it's ignored, right? So then they they they, they say also that uh, the, the court finds record evidence that the HLF Jerusalem office supported Hamas. This was a, a man by the name of uh, Mohammed Anati. He was he was uh, somebody who worked at the HLF office and was arrested by the Israeli government, um, and so he the government submits a statement that he made after his arrest. And after, you know, he had a statement beat out of him by the IDF and the government contended that this statement said that there was a link between HLF and Hamas. Basically, this guy, the the government puts it in front of the judge saying, look, we have this statement from this guy and it's in English. And it says, you know, HLF and Hamas said this link. However, the the attorneys and HLF look at the document, which is in Hebrew. It's the the man spoke Arabic and it gets translated into Hebrew, but even the Hebrew translation says that there isn't a link between HLF and Hamas. So the government is actually bringing in contradictory evidence to prove that HLF and Hamas had this link. Now that, I will say, is is, is one of the ones where, like, we're not talking about a disagreement here. Right. 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 We're not talking about a disagreement with the discretion of the agency as far as an argument. We're saying you got it fucking wrong. Like you're objectively right. wrong. And it's a place where you might want to argue to the court that we need some extra record evidence here. Okay. They relied on a translation that we're telling you is wrong. Okay. Here's an expert signed statement explaining, yeah, I understand the language that's being spoken here. And it's not, right. it, it says the opposite of what you think it's saying. That is you know, it exists in administrative law that this is a good reason to supplement yeah. the record, but nothing gets through to this fucking court. Right, and right. Just, just, that's exactly the kind of reason that you would get a, a, a supplement to the record. Yeah. Right? Yes, because <laughs> effective right. judicial review is going to yeah, require this additional yeah. evidence because right. there's a question about the fucking translation. Of the evidence exactly. itself that's in the record. And and just to have it, what the what the administrative record said was, Anati stated Holy Land provided aid to the needy, but some of the aid was channeled to Hamas. Basically A to B, right? I mean, if you're looking at just that, there's a link between HLF and Hamas. But the actual statement didn't say that. What Anadi actually said was that um, that Anadi enabled every branch to allocate the money freely. But because some of the heads of the branches were were connected with supporters of Hamas, some of the money served Hamas. That's what the Hebrew statement said. All right. You've made the opposite case. Good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. I changed my opinion. This was correct. All right. Cut. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. So obviously the lawyers were concerned. So they now Mohammed Anati was arrested by the Israelis and harassed on that side of the on that side of the world as well. So they contacted his lawyer, really well known Israeli human rights lawyer, Lat Semel, who's been defending Palestinians for decades. And she said, What are you talking about? I have all of his uh, I have all of his statements. He said, No such thing. So she sent over all of his statements, and I saw the records in her office. Um, they had them 
here translated by a professional translation firm, notarized. You know, they had to sign under oath. <coughs> and they looked at his statements and he said the exact opposite. He said, we never gave money to any group, or any organization based on um, any political or military organizations, only based on need. Now, the correct translation was in the evidence that was struck from the record. The wrong translation was in the government's administrative folder, which was accepted. Now, as we're going through these these items, we're not just giving you this, uh, you know, endless laundry list. These are the things that the court cites. The court says, look, record evidence supports the findings by the agency. This is why it's okay to execute the, the organization, seize all its assets, and shutter it. These are the only things, okay? The, the martyrs thing, the, the pre-1995 funding connections and meetings, the fact that they gave to charity and that somehow some of it trickled over by, you know, by means that they obviously didn't intend, uh, a translated statement that means the opposite of what they said. Uh, and then the last thing is that FBI had confidential informants. Now, some of this stuff, uh, we don't know what the classified evidence was, but there's some indication I think that's readable from the records that some of these statements appear to be the classified information. The versions of their statements are never put in the unclassified record. That's part of one of the decisions, and that's why I'm making the inference that the court says the versions of their statements were never put in the unclassified record it makes me think that their statements perhaps were in the classified record. Right, yeah. But we don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But right. there's eight of these guys. They're never identified. They're never cross-examined. No one gets to talk to them, know who they are, or, or know anything about them. And they, and they just, they claim that HLF funds Hamas. Okay, so you have eight unverified statements from unverified people, but all claiming the same thing. Yeah. Now, the fucking- It's literally source, dude, trust me. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. So the court says, the court says, well, okay, sure, yeah. Maybe you can't trust uh, a statement you get with an unidentified guy and no transcript or, you know, no ability to cross-examine it. But check this out. There's eight of them, Okay. And they all verify each other, all right? <laughs> if eight people tell you this and they all agree, uh, then that's proof positive. They all verify each other. Yeah. It's such a fucking stupid-ass argument, though, because no <laughs> one gets to cross-examine. We don't know who the right. eight are. It might just be eight FBI agents that they handed out fucking yeah, forms right, to exactly. and were like, hey, man, fill this shit out. Yeah, and essentially the argument is like, you know, eight is a number that is um, – a lot. It's more than seven. <laughs> right. Just say you have a million. Right, right, exactly. Right. Yeah. I got a phone See, call every, from God and it's right. classified, but like right. <laughs> it's fucking so stupid. Like yeah. plus all these statements, look, they're corroborated by all the debunked shit that we just got finished summarizing. So it's reasonable for OFAC to rely on all of this. Now that though that list of stuff that we just gave you, that's everything that they got. That's everything. It's if you are listening to this and you find the case uh you know, sympathetic, you find the government's case sympathetic here, fucking shut it off, man. There's nothing here. <laughs> There's no fucking evidence. It's all provably false shit. Yeah, it's right. not even a, a pretense of, of anything resembling... I mean, it's arbitrary and capricious. That's the way to put it. It's it's, it's completely arbitrary yes. the way that the government decided to go after these guys. Right. right. If there was a real connection between HLF and Hamas, like, don't you think you would have more than one person's statement which actually said the opposite? Right. Like there is there if you had um, actual verifiable connections and and sort of like funding sources and and financials and accounts and all of that, there would be (laughs) so much more as a guy who brings as a guy who brings cases in court and wants to (laughs) focus the court on the best evidence I got. If I got good stuff, 
Uh, you're not hearing about the fucking martyrs problem. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> the exactly. judge isn't here. You only hear about that when you got nothing. That's exactly okay? right. Yeah. So the fix is in, though. I mean, they're fucked. Like, the judge is obviously completely sympathetic, and it's, you know, it's a total post-9-11 decision. Uh, yeah. So the funds are seized. They're done. Um, and then they appeal, and the court says, uh, uh, look, they did everything right here, and you don't get to... Administrative record is long, you know, administrative law has long been clear that you can't amplify the record like this. And then it's funny because the district court says, now, we, we're, I'm not relying, I don't need the classified evidence to make my decision here. I'm not relying on it. The appellate court says, no, fuck that. Well, absolutely. <laughs> we we think that the that the the secret evidence, the secret unclassified, ev- sorry, the secret classified evidence is incontrovertible, which is a wonderful thing to say about evidence that has not been, that no one can controvert. Right. right. So it's a fucking circus. I mean, it's, you know, Kafka-esque is, is, is probably cliche to state, but there is no other way to it's say honestly, it. Honestly, I think Kafka is more uh, subtle about it. This is just, <laughs> I mean, the most brutal, like, authoritarian regime, basically. It's awful. This is like, yeah, this is like Warcraft. These are orcs doing it, basically. <laughs> uh, and and the, the upshot is this 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 charity organization is just gone overnight. Done. All of its, fun- the, all of its funds are gone. You know, like, I mean, basically, if you're the government, Thanks theoretically, you won. Fuck orphans. Should have thought about that before your parents got killed by IDF. But they, they, and they don't stop there, though. They they keep going after these guys, even though they've completely ruined their life's work. Oh, yeah, they're not. They're just getting fucking started. I do want to make one final point before we move on from the civil case here. Uh, this is just one that I've been pacing around saying to myself after reading these cases, you know, Tim and I have been chatting about just how enraging these cases are. They just yeah. spin you up every time you read one of the documents that hiding in the backgrounds and the footnotes to these decisions, uh, and, and these cases is the motivation that's actually driving them, which is judicial deference to the executive on national security grounds. Yeah. Okay, everybody mm-hmm. is running scared shitless after 9/11. The Bush admin's trying to bark and show leadership like like uh reset it's a it's a flex against the the brutal Muslim horde uh that's coming for us all. There's this there's this awful footnote in the district court opinion. The footnote is attempting to dispense with HLF's argument uh that the timing of the decision suggests that it's arbitrary and capricious because recall the government knew about hlf's donations to the zakat communities for years right, right. they've known about right. it for years they've known it. They, they, they've had all this documentation it's all reported um it's all accessible to them they've been listening to their calls suddenly two weeks after 9 11 they give a shit so this is in my view one of the most important arguments in the entire case because it's the one that suggests pretext which is what everybody knows and what is uh, frankly inarguable and we have testimony from treasury officials after the fact the general counsel no less right. that it's absolutely true right. which is that the decision was made on completely different grounds nobody gave up nobody thought these guys were fucking terrorists the reason right. it was made is because of fucking 9-11 yes exactly right right so the court is dealing with this argument which again i think is the most important argument in that that the plaintiffs have to offer and is the one that's the most inarguable uh for the defense mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and in the record, because the date of the damn thing is on the first page. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. But it's it's the one that, in hindsight, looms, right? Everybody knows what happened here. It's obviously not. Yeah. Not just, come on. So, but, but dealing with this in a footnote does not do justice to the argument. The timing is fucking everything. September 25th, 2001, an irrelevant Muslim organization suddenly getting shuttered. What the fuck do you think is happening? Right. You don't have to know right. anything else about this case to already know. Oh, yeah, they were getting fucking railroaded, obviously. 
Yeah, uh, and and by the way, on September 25, 2001, we knew Hamas had nothing to do with it. We knew it was Al-Qaeda. Nobody thought Al-Qaeda. Hamas had anything <laughs> right. to do with 9-11. No one ever did, right? And and so it's just it's just an insane uh, it's an insane way to dispense with this argument because what they say is, uh, listen, the timing of the decision is irrelevant because these are these are high the de- whether the decision is reasonable or rational um, because. These are highly political decisions, and we aren't going to, as a court, second-guess the policy and national security determinations of the government. And the thing, the thing that I want to get to on this is that what you're looking at here is, like I said, a national security deference. Now, recall that that's how they're dispensing with what I view as the plaintiff's, I think, most important and damning argument. Um, they're saying, well, you know, we're not going to second-guess national security determinations. I got to say, maybe you fucking should. Okay. Yeah. Like, who am, who am I as a judge to judge the facts? Going here? back to Korematsu, the political decisions of Korematsu also very much loomed in the background mm-hmm. of that case, and I think national very security much serve. Stake. They should serve as an eternal reminder, as long as America exists, the the problems with letting those things loom and not dispensing with it's them. It's such the a open. perfect reference, Tim, because yeah, like you have yeah. in, in Korematsu, you have the start of World War II, you have the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and then you have the government detention of Japanese citizens. And in the wake of that attack, you get a racist wave uh, that leads to all kinds of, you know, unconstitutional is, is sort of underselling the, the, the horrendous mm-hmm. behavior that, that, that went on, the, the, the acts of, uh, that, that went on towards the Japanese population in the United States. Um, this is very much like that. And yes, the judges themselves are the ones who can stop it. They are the ones who you, you have been nominated to the judiciary. You have lifetime tenure. You are the, you are our last line of defense to make everybody slow down and say, wait a second. Does this have anything to do with the thing that you're mad about? Right. Right. That's exactly right. And I just I wonder all of the time, um, especially in cases like this, like why the judiciary uh, sort of kneecaps itself. Right. Which is to say, like, makes itself a weaker institution by backing off and not being the accountability mechanism that it should be to. It doesn't make to any an overly sense. powerful, sort of overly uh, uh, zealous, overly violent executive branch. Right. And the other thing that I think about a lot, too, um, you know, is is the judiciary sort of using this, you know, they'll say that, you know, in in instances like this, with issues like this, in contexts like this, um, the judiciary has to defer to um, to the executive branch because that's the branch, you know, that's making the important decisions uh, about they're nas- on the ground, right, they're, they're about national the security. They're equipped with whatever fucking special skills it is to say, you know, something is a national security threat or not. But but we also have to question that context in all of the little ways that, you know, the judge, uh, the judges in these cases make the um, make the decisions that are not necessarily on substance. So, you know, the process questions, right, the procedural, mm-hmm. the procedural formalism and how that's weaponized against um, right. against the HLF. So saying, no, right. you can't you cannot supplement the record. Yeah, I'm sorry. They it. only gave you 15 days. Why right. Do you stick exactly. That, why do you stick that accurate yeah. translation up your ass? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I'm going to I'm uh, we're going to enforce this completely arbitrary 15 day deadline on you. We 
are going to enforce this completely arbitrary in this instance um, and flies in the face of the evidence in front of us, uh, you know, this rule about um, no extra record supplementation, you know. And so it's not just that they can kind of uh, they're able to, um, I guess, maybe wash their hands of like making an important decision here by saying it's a national security issue. And so it's not really our thing. But that context also plays out in all of the tiny little ways that this builds it's into uh, a, a horrific De- case. Deference appears all across the record, That's not right. just the substantive decision. And the reason these things don't make sense and the reason they rely on those procedural things is because they are making a political decision. That's right. They make That's it, exactly they're, right. They're not withheld from making a political decision. They either have to side with the government or side with essentially the people. Yeah, it's not a real option to say we're not making yeah. them. Exactly. And so yep. they use these procedural tricks to kind of launder their political decision and their agreement with the federal government that they need to stick it to these Muslims or you know whatever it is I mean I'm not saying that necessarily they're all kind of anti-Muslim you know foaming at the mouth conservatives but they believe it's at some level the the right of the sovereign to, to go after these people on the basis of their ethnicity and the basis of their religion I think you're absolutely right that they are making a political decision but even if you take them on their own terms I think one of the things you see with national security deference, and if you go to law school, you will end up reading a ton of post-9-11 opinions and, you know, FISA court opinions, or not a FISA court opinions, but, like, appeals from FISA, like the, the Amnesty v. Clapper decision about the bulk collection statutes that, sure. uh, yeah, yeah. you know, where they, they're, they're looking at your, they're looking at, you know, three hops out from your phone calls and shit like that. Um, you find national security deference, you find the court saying, listen, like, like you were saying, look, we don't know much about this area. You guys are on the ground. We're not going to second guess you. Uh, side note, the court does the same thing with police all the time. They say, well, you know, exactly. right. listen, I, I'm not stepping out of the car with the gun. I'm not in danger. I don't want to second guess their decisions. Exactly. So they use that rationale. They say, well, you know, we can't judge if if we're not on the ground. And then the second thing they say is it's high stakes. This is a high stakes situation. It's national security. And I got to say that neither of these... Neither of these rationales for putting a thumb on the scale and for eviscerating constitutional rights makes any fucking sense because right. they are both always true. Like, the, I'm sorry, but the, the judges, you don't – all respect. They don't do all, anything all, except sit in the courtroom. Yeah, all respect to you, uh, you know, hallowed members of the bench, but you don't fucking know about anything, okay? I'm so, I I presented cases on, right. on software and pieces of technology and stuff, and, like, they have to learn it. They don't know about it when we get in there. I'm not trying to call them morons or anything. I'm not. I'm not making some kind right. of like a childish. Yeah, point nobody like that. does. Nobody does. You don't know you, about you, that you, shit. You have to learn about it. It's our job as attorneys to educate you about it. Saying you don't know anything about it is just saying you're litigating. Duh! You fucking don't know anything about you know. Right. Uh, you don't know anything about the rates that are being charged by this company or why that's fraudulent or something. You have to be educated. That's the attorney's job is to package it for you, and it's your job to parse through the evidence and require the evidence you need to make a decision. It's no defense to say, well, I don't know anything about this area, because then you turn to those experts or you you demand them to come before you and say, explain this to me. That's your fucking job as Damn, a judge. that's, that's right. such a good point. Yeah, like, I mean, just <laughs> thinking about, like, uh, any fucking trial right like they don't yeah, know shit yeah a judge yeah. you don't know whose fault the accident was judge but what? you're about to learn because the attorneys are about to tell you you stupid right. and bitch let's see, and, and <laughs> let's ask the parties before you if they think that that case is high stakes to them 
Right. That's exactly right. You want to talk right. about high stakes? Let's talk about the guys who are still in jail right. over this fucking case. Yep. It's, that's some yeah. fucking high stakes here. Yep. Okay? So it's you can't just say it's high stakes for the government because of national security. Because on the other side is, an, is a financially executed organization and five men who are going to be in prison until forever, until they die. Right. Uh, it's high stakes for them too. It's no defense. You are just abdicating your role. Saying that you, mm-hmm. you have to put a thumb on the scale because you don't know anything about it. Uh or because it's high stakes mm-hmm. is is just ignoring your role as an Article Three judge. Your your whole your point is to, your your entire position in society is to deal with high stakes shit. Be educated about it and make a call. Yeah, they do know one thing though. To be fair, which is say for example, if one party is alleging that uh, a translation of evidence says one thing and one party says a translation says the opposite thing, that there needs to be a resolution factually about what it says. They they. Their expertise as being judges is kind of being able to look at the laws behind this stuff and apply those laws to the facts. That's their actual yeah, job. Right. Yeah, and how that worked and out so, here was they said, uh, well, right. it was rational to rely right. on the and, IDF's and, translation. And so by deferring to the facts, they defer on the law as well. Right. And they say, eh, I'm just going to completely wash my hands. Very cool. Yeah, and and so and so in the in the wake of this, this racist wave of uh, you know anti-Muslim sentiment in the United States, these are the people who were tasked with slowing things down here and they fucking just got out of the way of the train. That's right. Right. It's a fucking shame. We are going to have a second part to this episode because what happens next... um, is that is a lot, and we don't want to talk yeah. about it more. Well, 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 because what happened? So we are going to have a second part to this episode because what happens next is that the you know five of the men who are principals and actors in, in HLF uh, get criminally prosecuted for uh, their actions with HLF, and the trials there are insanely fucked up and probably worse than the stuff we see here. The stakes are higher. You're allowed to bring in whatever evidence you can subject to the federal rules of evidence. And even still, the, the judge is, if anything, even more deferential to the government uh, when less deference is, is due. Yeah, I would, I would say that the federal rules of evidence do not appear to apply to a number of, <laughs> of things that happen yeah. in those trials. So stay tuned for that. Sure. We're going to record that episode on a different date, and um, you, guys will, you guys will see that from us soon. Ree, thanks so much for coming. Uh, we hope to have you for the next yeah, one. Thank too. you. Thanks for good. having much me. Better. Looking forward to the yeah. next part. Awal ishi lazim nimtilko hi mubadar. Ismaa fanistaqa tuzaritna diha muhadar. Rahna bi musar. Ali min zaman tabatuna fiha bina duha mamar. Awadam wali haliha. Arifkom ana bsana min balad sim halid fiha li boot al ma bitfaid taman mu fiha li bihedlan. Nas li amlu galatu banu arzhum u kulli li bisir bas. Ashan hum li wahd hum gayer. Waif ala mukaf li sharif u dayer. Ilaqul wa ibda fahem inna alqwa bil مجمع ولا ولا مرة بالمفرد وعادة إذا فكرنا هيك إحنا بمفرد عن الكل والغلط إنه فكرنا بالكل بس هذا الغلط لأنه صح ولازم ودون ولما قلنا إيدي بإيد ما كانش أصنا أصبع ولا تأخذ لازم تطلب والقوة بالمجمع <تصفيق> you
مضبوط زي الهمسة تكون كل ما ضل بسكوت دن الشعب تفوت بس لو تصرخ لا بغرقها ظهر الحق اسمع بقدر افهم كل عيوني اللي من حزن تدمع بس ما بفهم اللي ما يمسح عيونه تايه يسأل على لبسه وهو قاعد يجدف في دموعه ايش بيصير هنا مال الكل يطلع علينا يمكن عشان احنا اللي فاتحين جرينا يا زلمه المره هذيك مظاهره ضد هدن البيوت كان فيها 100 واحد تسعين منهم يهود اذا اليوم بتوقف تطلع كيف قاعدين بيهجروا جارك بكره اربع دارك جارك زيك واقف تطلع مكانك السلسله طويله بس الها اخر سقوط للقدره العاشه شايفه عارفه بس خايفه يسرعوا فينا ساكنه تصلت بس الفتنه وش بنقول للحلقه الاضعف مع السلامه حياتنا بتميلة صهيونية اللي تنزل فينا وسخها واحنا عمالنا ننسلم ولا حدا بيفتح المي ولا حتى احنا والوسخ بيكتر اكتر واكتر وهي اللحظة برجع من وين ما اجى بس كل ما يقرب على الافا الفعل بيصير مفعول فيه وبس بنظف القريب عليه بتأمل انه مرة كله يفور برا تشديدا على كلمة كله وهيك الكل بيوقف عجري وهيك احنا بنوقف الجدار وهيك احنا بنوقف القطار وسكة الحديد بتصير بعيد عن الدار وبرضه بنوقف